If you would, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 18. I'm just going to read one verse out of this chapter. <clears throat> we had a great meeting up in New York yesterday. We commented that, um, you know, even among the hustle and bustle of New York City, being at Times Square, uh, being in Midtown, you know, having the service that we had there, it's good to know that even in the midst of all of that busyness and that creativity and that advanced technology and ingenuity that we can still see that that's only a little sliver of the creativity and the beauty and the, and the infinite wisdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it was really good to know that even in the midst of that busyness, you can stop and just reflect on God's word and just be with God's people and sing praises to his holy name. And it was a good time of doing that yesterday while we were there in the middle of that major, major city. So I want to look at 1 Kings chapter 18. And there's a verse here, and this is all a story that we're all familiar with. Um, This is a story where Elijah um, has this battle with the prophets of Baal, these false prophets, these ministers of a false god. But right before that, in verse 21, you see that Elijah comes together, and he came unto all the people, it says. And so here you have Elijah, and you have all of Israel before him. And when he comes before them, he's not there to entertain them. He's not there to take all of their different worldviews and make them coalesce into one unified you know, people to try to make them have some um, unity around their diversity. He's not trying to say it's our differences that make us stronger. You know, he's not trying to create some false sense of unity. Amen. When he's there among all of these people, look at what he asks them. And look at what he forces this group of people to focus on. And Elijah came unto all the people and he said, How long halt ye between two opinions? It's devastatingly simple. He just cuts right to the heart of the matter. And he says, this is the question that's going to determine your futures. This is the question that's going to determine how you live your lives. And how God, the very God of heaven that made everything that we experience, how that God's going to interact with you. How long halt ye between two opinions? And he goes on to say, if the Lord be God, then follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And so he's saying, you know, you are at this crossroads today, right now, at this very moment. It's like he's gathered these people together in the midst of their busy lives and all the things that they have to do. And he said, at this moment in time, you need to stop and you need to meditate and focus on this question. How long are you going to halt between two worldviews, between two very different, radically different Systems of thought. How long are you going to halt between truth and untruth or a lie? And he says, if God be God, if the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. 
the response that the people give him here is interesting. It says, and the people answered him not a word. And I've often read that and thought, why? Like, why would that question that's so simple? This is, these are the people of God. This is the nation of Israel. Why would this question be such a hard question for them to answer? So much so that maybe they're caught off guard to the point that they just stand there and look at Elijah. Maybe they don't know how to respond. Maybe they've never even stopped long enough to consider the question. And so that's what I think we need to do today is we have such busy lives. We have such, we live in a time that's so divided. I mean, we're all going to go vote in a couple of days, and I'm not going to make this a political message at all. But just stop and notice how divided our country is. Look at how divided our homes tend to be. And that division goes all the way from our, you know, at the federal level to the state, to the community, and to our homes, and even into our own very, in our hearts. Because there is this, there's this truth, and then there's the world. There's light, and there's darkness. And Elijah is forcing the people, forcing us this morning to pause and ask, and in being asked that question, we respond to it. How long are we going to halt between two opinions? Just to give a little background into kind of what led the Israelites up to this point. You all know that God led this nation out of Israel. They were in bondage. They didn't have freedom of movement, freedom of uh, being able to worship freely, being able to do the things that we take for granted today. And God called this people out of that bondage. He said, you will be my people. And I will take Moses and I will bring him to Egypt. And he's going to deliver you out of this bondage. And after that happened, the people in their frailty, you know, they got scared. They felt like their security had been ripped out from under them. The things that they just loved, that they turned to for security like food. You know, the fact that there was food readily available in Egypt. After a while, they started thinking, wow, you know, this freedom is great. Being out of bondage is great, but there is a certain security in being in bondage in Egypt. And so they mumbled about that, and they grumbled within their hearts. And so that same question could have been asked to them at that time. How long will you halt between two opinions? Do you want to be a free people of God? Do you want to be governed by the God of this universe? Or do you want to give all that up and go back into what you think is the safety and security, but ultimately it's just bondage? And so that's a question that we would ask ourselves today. Do we want to be a free people who opens our word freely, the word of God, and we get inspiration and we take comfort and we see the very breath of God coming off the pages? Or do we instead want to run to the Supposed security of the world, the easy things of this world, entertainment, sports, sometimes work. And those things aren't bad. I'm not saying that those are bad, but they are bad if they become the idol that we turn to for comfort, for hope, for security. 
And so this is a question that needs to be asked all along the path of God's people as he's bringing together his people. And we see all throughout the life of the Israelites, you know, we see through the times of the judges, we see people acting and doing the things within their hearts that they felt like were right. Scripture said that every man did what was right in his own eyes. And what that led to was heartache and devastation over and over and over because people have hearts that are wicked. So wicked that they can't even be known, Jeremiah says. And so then as we see this progression move along, we have Saul, we have, he reigned about 40 years, and we have King David, and then we have Solomon. And so as 1 Kings opens up, we see Solomon, and we see Solomon, his reign beginning. Uh, we see the fact that Solomon asks for wisdom and how to rule in a way that's wise and righteous. And then after a while, Solomon starts to go down the wrong path. He starts allowing the false religions of the surrounding nations to infiltrate his heart, the heart of his people. You know, the Israelites came out you know, from the wilderness experience basically as, as, as nomadic people wandering in the wilderness. And they came into a land that was fertile, kind of like the, the, the farmland that we see around us today. This beautiful land. And so they came into a land that was different from what they'd ever experienced. And what they found in that, in that land where you know, the soil was so important and crops were so important and farming and agriculture were so important. That these people turned to these false gods to give them security. And they turned to these false gods so that they would feel like they had some ability to have control over their destinies. They would pray to Baal because they thought that Baal would give them good crops. They would pray to Astaroth, who was the goddess of Canaan. They thought that she would bless them with, with, with fertility of the land and, and of, of their families. And Their worship of these false gods got so twisted that they wound up doing abominable things like human sacrifice. And so here they are, God's people in the midst of all of this, and it's just infiltrated their hearts and their minds. And through all of that, God is loving them, providing for them, sending Elijah to preach to them, to give them his word. And all of this coalesces right here in this verse that we just read. So Ahab, that king Ahab, got all the children of Israel, and he gathered them all together on Mount Carmel. And that's when Elijah came and said, enough is enough. Today is the day that you have to hear the word of the Lord and make a stand. You have to hear this question, this easy, simple question. I think for us, what's important is that when you see all of this false worship of these false gods, this worship of these false gods... This stuff even went on inside the temple where the very presence of God was meeting with them. If you turn back in your Bibles a few chapters at 1 Kings chapter 6, you can see in verse 11 that this is 1 Kings chapter 6 verse 11, that the word of the Lord came to Solomon saying, concerning this house which thou art in building, 
If thou wilt walk in my statutes and execute my judgments and keep all my commandments to walk in them, then will I perform my word with thee, which I spake unto David thy father. And look at verse 13. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people. And so the nation of Israel had God dwelling with them. His presence was with them. But because of their sin, and because of, and it's the same sin that we battle today, because of that fear, because of that need to control our surroundings, because of that need to follow what we think will give us happiness and comfort, they brought all of these false gods in to defile the presence of God. Like to to defile the temple where the very holy presence of God was. And that's what Elijah is challenging them on. And he's saying, you have got to decide who you are. You have got to decide what it is that you will serve. Who you will serve. And I think for us, and we, we talked a little bit about this yesterday when we were up at the fellowship in New York. We have to stop sometimes and, 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 and ponder and meditate on God's word. Questions like this. We have to think about, you know, our lives are so busy. Sometimes we don't even have time to just to sit and stop and think about the God that we serve. And the God that loves us so much, it's so easy for us to forget. There was a, a play that you guys have probably seen or read. I read this as a young child, and it's by a man named Thornton Wilder in the place called Our Town. And this, what's interesting about this play, which is a lot like this message that Elijah delivers on Mount Carmel is that it's very, very simple. If you've seen this play or read the play, you know that there's only three acts. On the stage, there's no props. It's just dialogue. And what it, what it is, it's dialogue about the human experience on this earth. You've got this small little town in New Hampshire called Grover's Corner. You've got the narrator who's speaking to the audience and breaking that, you know, the, the fourth wall where he's actually speaking directly to the audience. And he's given them an insight into the life of this little tiny town in New Hampshire. We see the Gibbs family and the Webb family, and we see how they interact with each other. And then we see in the next act that two of the children from two of those families are about to get married, Emily and George. And so we see how life is moving along in this little town. They're there, they're growing up, they're interacting with each other. Now they're engaged. They're about to get married. And then in the final act, and I'm sorry if you haven't read this play or seen it. This is going to be a spoiler. In the final act is where things change. And, and again, this is also a warning. If you haven't read this play, if you haven't seen it, go see it. You can watch it probably on YouTube. But just prepare to cry for a few days. Uh, I watched it again a while back, and I, I cried for days. I mean days. Because what you see in that is that when this beautiful young mother she dies in childbirth 
And so in this, in this scene, she's, she, she you know, goes back and she, she revisits one day of her life, a nondescript day, her 12th birthday. And she goes back and she's able to, to see that day unfold you know, as if she's there, but she's watching it from the outside. And she's there, she sees her mother, she's talking to her mother, she sees her father. I mean, she's, she's, she's taking it all in. She sees how young and vibrant they look and how she hadn't noticed that they had grown so old. And there's this gut-wrenching scene where she says to her mother there, she just says, Mama, would you please just stop for one minute and look at me as though you really see me? And it's a commentary on just how busy we are and how we don't just stop to, one, see each other, to see our families, to really talk to each other. And I'm afraid to say in the age that we're getting into, this busyness, this, the, the connectivity, and we all have computers in our pockets that take us and disconnect us from each other. And kids, this is not a curmudgeonly old man just saying, don't, you know, don't have an iPhone. I'm saying we have to see each other and stop and just really look at each other and interact with each other and love one another. And this is the same thing. It's exactly the same simple message that Elijah is bringing when he says to the people of Israel, stop and just think about this for a moment. Who is it that you are going to serve? This life is going to go by like a vapor. My wife Tara and I have been married for 23 years, and it seems like only yesterday when she told me that nobody would ever marry me. Um, <laughs> she did marry me, and we've had eight kids since, and it, it, our oldest daughter is now married, and it just went by like that. And so we do have to just stop and just meditate upon God. I'll turn to one more verse, which I think drives this home. And this is a psalm. If you would, turn me to Psalm 119. One of the reasons that we need to slow down and meditate upon God's Word is that when we do that, when we have that slow, deliberate, just thinking about God and, 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 and interacting with His Word, then we really are able to see him. You know, just like Emily going back to her mother and pleading for her just to see me. Let's look at each other. And when you meditate slowly on God's word, you can do that. If you look in Psalm 119, turn to verse 15, where it says, I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself in thy statutes, and I will not forget thy word. I will not forget thy word. When we slowly meditate upon God's word, when we try to keep it in our hearts all day long, when we try to take even a simple verse from God's word and just think about it and think of how that applies to me and, 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 and try to you know, disconnect from some of the, the distractions of the world and just pray about that verse or pray about that, that word. And then we have respect unto God's ways. That respect, that fear, that reverence of God will grow in your hearts. 
says, I will delight myself in thy statutes. It's not always easy to, to read your word and to read the Bible and get something out of it. But the more you meditate on God's word, the slower you become, the more uh, just the more deliberate you become in reading God's word. That is an outcome. Your delight in the ways of the Lord will grow. We just sang today that the Lord has never forgotten us. And that's in the hymn adoration. The Lord has never forgotten us. Let's not forget him. You know, it's an easy thing just to get busy and forget the goodness of the Lord. Verse 17, we see, Deal bountifully with thy servants, that I may live and keep thy word. You know, there's living in this world, and then there's living, right? The child of God can live, truly live in this world. You know, when we, when we go out these doors today, and we go out into the world, and when we go to work this week, we're going to encounter people that are living. But we're also going to encounter people that aren't truly living in the, in the way that God has designed his people to live, in ways that reflect his glory, and that focus on his goodness, and that go look for his precepts, and build their lives line upon line, the precepts of God's word. That's living. Right? When you do that, that's when relationships turn around. That's when broken marriages become healed. That's when trouble at work gets smoothed over. That's when your own self-focus gets smaller and smaller and you focus more on others and your relationships get better and your life gets easier in this world. That's salvation in this world. And that's what Elijah's asking us to do. Think about this for a minute. What are you going to do today? Who are you going to serve right this minute? Are you going to serve God or are you going to serve the world? Are you going to serve the, the myriad of secular ideas that come bombarding you every day? Are you going to turn to the media for answers to life's problems? Or are you going to turn to God? And when you do that, when you turn to God, we read in the Psalms that we will truly live. Deal bountifully with thy servant, verse 17, that I may live and keep thy word. And he goes on to say, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. That's a prayer. I mean, that's a heartfelt cry that when we take the time to slow down and focus our life, that's the natural prayer that children, the children of God should have. God, open mine eyes. In every situation I'm in, in every relationship that I have, Open my eyes that I may see the, whole, the, the, the glories of Christ and emulate that. Open mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. And then he goes on to say, I am a stranger in the earth. Hide not thou, thy commandments from me. Sometimes we need to take the time to slow down and realize how different we are from the world. It's very easy for us to want to look like the world. It's very easy for us to want to get along with the world. Now, I'm not advocating that we need to go out and be cantankerous and stir up trouble in the world, but we are not supposed to look like the world. We're not supposed to think like the world. We're not supposed to, to, to solve problems in the same way the world solves problems. We are to act like children of God. I'm a stranger in the earth. 
But open my eyes, Lord, that I might be able to understand your commandments. Don't hide your commandments from me, Lord, is the prayer that we should have. It says, My soul breaketh for the longing that it hath unto thy judgments at all times. When we can meditate, we'll get to the point where our heart will break if we're operating outside of the judgments of God. If we say, would God be pleased with what I'm doing? That's, that's when we get to the point where we ask those questions like Elijah's asking. And if the answer is no, then we say, God, please forgive me. Repent of those, those actions, those sins, those thoughts. My soul breaketh for the longing that it hath unto thy judgments. Thou hast rebuked the proud that are cursed, which do err from thy commandments. Remove from me reproach and contempt, for I have kept thy testimonies. Princes also did sit and speak against me, but thy servant did meditate in thy statutes. Thy testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. We see that it doesn't matter if even governors or politicians Powerful people are princes in this case in verse 23. If they sit and speak against you and say vile things against you or persecute you, it doesn't matter because if you have slowly meditated and seen God and you're desiring his commandments, then it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the world thinks because your only focus then is on serving the Lord and loving others and helping others. And so my prayer for us is that like Elijah is calling us to do, like he called the people of Israel to do, slow down. Think about this question. If the world is the Lord, then serve the world. But if God, if our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the Lord, then serve him. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings Appreciate that message so much. Turn to Psalm 102, please. Psalm 102 is captioned a prayer of the afflicted when he is overwhelmed and poureth out his complaint before the Lord. So you know right off this is going to be an interesting psalm. This is a psalm that is pressed out of someone's heart squeezed out of them the way you squeeze juice out of a lemon. Well, Stephen, I don't know what's going on. Okay. Um, Brother Stephen said, you're on your own, Brother Andrew. Um, <clears throat> this, um, if nobody else can hear that, let me know, and I want to see a doctor right after the service. But... <laughs> This, uh, this is, as many of the Psalms uh, are, this is an experiential expression of the psalmist's heart. 
his life, his, his experience, what he's going through. And it's not so much a casual recitation of his thoughts, an analytical framework for you know, his situation in life. It's something that's being squeezed out of him by the circumstances in which he finds himself. The first few verses of this psalm give us a glimpse of those circumstances, but the, the description is fairly broad so that I think you may be able to find yourself in this psalm. In fact, let me say that I think there are probably, among God's children, only three types of people here today. There are people who are in trouble. There are people who know someone they care about who's in trouble. And there's people who's going to be in trouble. And so even if this, even if you're riding high right now, even if you're feeling pretty good and you've got your life in order and all, everything just seems to connect every corner of every jigsaw puzzle piece just fits right in with the one next to it. Just wait a little while and you're going to realize this Psalm speaks to me. This is a Psalm for me. In fact, it says a prayer of the afflicted, but the preposition used there in that caption is, uh, ambiguous enough it can actually go both ways it can say a prayer of the afflicted and it can also say a prayer for the afflicted and i think it's true both ways this is clearly a prayer of an afflicted man and this is a prayer for the afflicted men and women and boys and girls even in the kingdom of god today let's bow our heads and go to the lord in prayer before we begin to look at this psalm heavenly father we thank you so much for the the joyful privilege of coming into your house the pillar and ground of the truth, the place where you have set your testimony, the place where you have uh, you've, you've called us, Father, to be faithful witnesses to you in every age. And we're thankful for this specific church here in Maryland, at Mount Carmel, that has stood now for many generations, and, and it bears witness to that desire for continuity, for us to go onward in, in the, the, the walk that you called your people, the path you called us to follow. We pray, Father, that you would lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. We pray that you would lead us in a plain path. We pray, Father, that you would illuminate that path with your word because your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And I pray, Father, today that you would continue, as you've already done in Brother Heinemann's message, that you would continue to speak to our hearts and minds through your words and apply these truths to our lives in a way that will make a difference today and tomorrow. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come unto thee. You know, the beggar, the old saying is, beggars can't be choosers. The beggar is one who knows he's not really entitled to anything. That's why sometimes you come across a beggar in San Francisco or New York, and, and, and as much as you feel some sympathy toward their situation, you're not really inclined to, to reach out to them because they actually act like they are entitled. This is my street corner. I'm here. What are you doing? You can't walk past me. Put something in my cup. But that spirit of entitlement does not reflect the, the condition of a person who truly realizes how helpless and needy he is. Hear my prayer. He's asking for permission. He's begging the Lord to, to entertain his request that really doesn't deserve to be answered. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come unto thee. Hide not thy face from me in the day when I am in trouble. Incline thine ear unto me, and in the day when I call, answer me speedily. Well, you may say that last little bit sounds pretty demanding. Hurry up and answer me, Lord. 
But I don't really read it that way. In the context of those, the full first two verses, I view that speediness as a cry of urgent necessity. You know, it's kind of like the time when Peter stepped out on faith, when Jesus said, come, and, uh, and Peter stepped out and walked on the water, and then he looked down on the waves around him, and you remember what happened? He started going down real quick. I don't know if you've ever tried to walk on water. I did as a child several times, and with always a very similar result. Um, I don't think I made it very far into the second step. Uh, you start going under real quick. And so I don't view this as some, you know, gradual philosophical revelation that came over Peter. Hmm, I'm not sure this is going to work. No, I think there was instantaneous sinking once he took his eyes off of Jesus and therefore an instantaneous urgent necessity that came forth from his heart through his lips when he said, help, Lord, Lord, help. He just simply just an arrow shot of a prayer. Just he barely had time. The, the last word of his prayer may have had bubbles coming out of the surface of the water. And, and, and friends, when Nehemiah went before the king and, 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 and the burden of his heart had been praying for the restoration of Jerusalem for months, and then suddenly the occasion arose, he was serving the king, and the king said, why do you look sad, Nehemiah? And Nehemiah said, this is my chance. This is the door of opportunity that's been opened for me, but I wasn't re- fully ready for it. I wasn't prepared. And he says, I prayed unto the Lord, and I answered the king. There wasn't time for a long prayer meeting. Excuse me, king, I'll be right with you. Let me call my friends together. We're going to have a prayer meeting before I answer you. It doesn't work that way when you work for a king. Uh, most bosses, it doesn't work that way very well. No, it's time to, when he calls, it's time to answer. And so there was an arrow shot of a prayer to heaven, followed by uh, an immediate response to the king. And the Lord answered that prayer and gave Nehemiah the help he needed. He gave Peter the help he needed. He pulled him up out of the waves. And here this psalmist is saying, Lord, I am in such a state right now. Lord, I need your help and I need it right now. Lord, I'm desperate for your help. Don't hide your face from me. Don't don't, don't uh, turn your ear away from me. Instead, incline your ear unto me. For my days are consumed like smoke and my bones are burned as an hearth. My heart is smitten and withered like grass so that I forget to eat my bread. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a state so low? Maybe it was physical ailment. Maybe even more likely it was heartache. There's some circumstance in your own life, in your own relationships, or maybe you're looking out for your children or some other loved one or some brother or sister in the church and you, you know something of what they're going through. And like the New Testament says, we weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. And at the time, our grief is so heavy that we cannot even bring ourselves to eat the next meal. And you know, doctors begin to worry about uh, folks, especially in the twilight years of life, when they, when they reach the point where they, what they say is lose the will to live or failure to thrive, and they, they just don't want to bother with eating anymore. It's just the appetite is gone. There's just an emptiness that can't be filled and satisfied with food. It's funny how that works. It works both ways. You remember Jesus uh, talking to the woman at the well of Samaria in John chapter 3 or 4, I think it is, and, um, and he sent the disciples away to get lunch. And while they're getting lunch, he has this interaction with this woman. And if you're reading that, you get so excited about this interaction. It's just an incredible dialogue and, and the power of God is revealed. And it turns out not just the woman, but the whole town side comes out and they're excited to hear what the woman has seen and heard. And then they say, now we believe it, not because you told us, it's because we've seen it with our own eyes. We've heard it with our own ears. And after this remarkable church service has happened that the disciples missed altogether, they come back and they think they're going to get a pat on the back. Lord, we got some lunch. <laughs> And Jesus, you remember what he said? He said, I've had meat to eat that you know not of. I've I've had something so satisfying that it'll be fine if you stick that in the fridge for a little while. 
We'll get around to dinner in a little while, but right now we're savoring something even sweeter and more rich and more satisfying than the best gourmet meal you could possibly offer. Well, here it's the opposite situation. This person is so low, so, so stressed in body and mind and soul that he says, I forget to eat my bread. By reason of the voice of my groaning, my bones cleave to my skin. I was looking at this verse a few weeks ago uh, at another church in the southeast, and, and a sister came up afterwards who'd actually been through some, some incredibly horrific physical trials, and she said, that, that verse described, literally described my situation. She said the physicians just pieced together the outer layer of my skin directly over my rib cage. It was just, there was, there was barely a barrier there between my organs and everything on the outside that could harm me and kill me. And so this, you get the picture of this emaciated person starving themselves to death or this disease-ridden person whose bones are just protruding through their skin. But it's by reason of the voice of my groaning. It's not merely physical affliction. There is anguish of soul. And then he says, I'm like a pelican of the wilderness. I'm like an owl of the desert. And in verse 7, he says, I'm like a sparrow alone on the housetop. And this is perhaps, it's often the most challenging and difficult part of the struggle. You know, I feel like I could, I tell Rhonda this sometimes, I say, I feel like I could face the world with one hand tied behind my back as long as you're standing beside me. You know, we could do this together. Um, I feel like, you know, when a church is unified behind their pastor, they could come and padlock your doors and you'd, be, you'd have a twice as good a worship service out into the trees. You, you, you can face all kinds of enemies when you're standing together. But what a burden it is when you suddenly think, I'm standing alone. You know, Elijah, on the heels of that amazing Mount Carmel experience that Brother James read to us and talked to us about from this morning, on the heels of that very same experience, he got word that Queen Jezebel was out to take his life because he was, she was upset that she lost so many of her false prophets and Elijah was to blame for it, that Elijah ran out in the wilderness and said, I'm, I'm all alone. There's nobody left. He'd just seen a, a, a radical transformation, a conversion there take place in Israel. He'd seen people reaffirm their devotion to the Lord, who maybe had neglected their, that calling for, for years or even generations. And, and they said, yes, we'll do the right thing. But now suddenly adversity comes. He flees. He finds himself physically alone. And he says, I'm alone. I'm, there's no one left to serve God except me. And in that condition, he was at his weakest. In that condition, he had the same God. The truth was still the same. God had taken care of him in the face of hundreds of enemies. But suddenly now, he feels like I'm all alone. And in that destitute state, he was at his weakest point. The psalmist says the same thing. I'm all alone, like a sparrow alone upon the housetop. Mine enemies reproach me all the day. And they that are mad against me are sworn against me, for I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. I take a drink of water, but my own tears are running down my cheeks and getting into the cup of water that I'm drinking. You know, Brother James talked about the, the um, distraction and, um, and just the, some of the particular challenges of, of our modern times. And, and it's been observed uh, by many, even even non-religious types of uh, folks looking into this social phenomenon, it's been observed that this technology that promises to bring us all together, that promises to make the world one great collective 
hive mind actually has the result of making many people feel very, very alone. You look and you see the, pic, the glamorous pictures of somebody else's life, which, by the way, ain't that perfect. But it looks that way on social media for a little while. And you look over here and somebody you wanted to talk to looks like they're having fun with somebody you didn't even know they were friends with. And gradually you, all of us, any of us, no matter how well connected we are, no matter how many friends, true or imagined we have, we can end up feeling like at one level we're so connected, but then in the end we're so isolated, so alone. And so this psalmist says, I'm afflicted. I'm, I'm pressed out. I'm burdened. I'm, I'm squeezed. And now he comes to a moment of realization in verse 10 that's going to unfold for the rest of the psalm. And the message today that I want to bring to you is perspective for the afflicted. There are three aspects of perspective, changes in perspective that the psalmist is going to experience that are the antidote to this sense of hopeless distress that he is feeling. It does not mean that the circumstances of the trial are going to immediately change. It does not mean that he will be immediately delivered into a bed of roses of the rest of his life. But what it does mean is he will be able to face the trial and his attitude will be entirely different than what we've seen in the first nine verses of this psalm. The psalmist goes in verse 10, goes on to say, because of thine indignation, he's talking to the Lord, this is a prayer. So he's talking to God and he says, because of thine indignation and thy wrath, for thou hast lifted me up and cast me down. This is, a, this is a, an acknowledgement of the providence of God that I have learned by experience over the course of my pastoral years is not something you can really teach anyone. It's not, you cannot go to a person that's suffering and say, you know what? God's hand is upon you. God's lifted you up and he's brought you down. It does not work that way. The reaction more often than not is one of resentment and one of saying, you just don't understand what you're talking about. And and they're right. From a very real perspective, they're right. I don't know what they're talking. I don't know what they're going through. I mean, I've had similar experiences to some of you, but every one of you has undergone experiences that I cannot fully relate to. And frankly, I've gone through some experiences that you cannot fully relate to. But we do have an high priest who is touched with the feelings of our infirmities, who was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. We do have one who can relate to our every struggle, our every burden, our every affliction, and can minister to us in that grief. And even when we, are, we feel to be all alone, even when the pastor says, I know what needs to be said, but I can't say it, and so he bites his tongue, in that moment of spiritual solitude, friends, I want you and I want me, I want us to be prepared like the psalmist to acknowledge God's providence even in the depths of our woe. Keep your uh, Bible open to Psalm 102, but I'm going to flip back to uh, Psalm 119 where Brother James was just on the next page where David says in Psalm 119 verse 67, well, let's read verse 71 first, verse Psalm 119, 71, he said, it is good for me that I have been afflicted that I might learn thy statutes. And verse 67 gives us some additional light on that. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. Do you know, God, there's two things that are always true about suffering, grief, affliction in the life of the child of God. Two things that are always true. No flavor of suffering is exactly the same for any two people in this building. Even if you're undergoing what looks like the same experience, there's something unique about the way it affects you and your station in life, your season of life that you're in. But two things that are always true for every child of God who's undergoing any sort of affliction. 
And one of those things is that suffering is always the result, directly or indirectly, of sin. That does not mean that the suffering you're undergoing today is the direct consequence of some specific sin in your life. In fact, sometimes the suffering you're undergoing today is because you did the right thing. It's because you did the right thing and somebody else sinned against you and harmed you. But do you see that the second person committed sin? And therefore, your suffering is the result of sin. And even if you can't trace it that directly to some particular outside sin or internal sin, we know that there would be no suffering in this world at all had not sin entered into the world and death by sin, so that death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. So all suffering in this world Ultimately, this is most perfectly pictured in the suffering of Christ himself, who was the only sinless man ever to live, walk, and die on the, on the face of the earth. But his suffering was the result of sin. It was the result of my sin and your sin and the sin of every member of the family of God from Adam until the return of Christ. It's the consequence of sin. And therefore, it is truly and rightly a grievous thing. It's all, there's always a tragic element to, to whatever suffering we're undergoing, even if it's something we brought on ourselves, or even if it's something we didn't bring on ourselves. There still is a sin, a component of sin that is, that is affecting or influencing or giving occasion to the suffering that we experience. But the other thing that is always true of affliction for the child of God is that even though God is in no wise the author of confusion, that God uh, cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Even though God is in no way the author of sin, God specializes in using broken circumstances and broken people to bring about glory to his name and good to his people. So God, as one old preacher said, can hit a straight lick with a crooked stick. And I'm glad that's the case because I see a lot of crooked sticks in here today. So when God can take twisted, messed up, deformed people, failures like you and me, and still use us to bless each other in some way, still use us to shine his light into the world in some way, still use us to be salt in a, in a flavorless and decaying world or light to a dark and dying world, then we see that what the psalmist said here in 119 is exactly right. It's good for me that I've been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. So David, or the psalmist in 102, is casting his lot in the hands of the Lord. And he's saying, Lord, I give you praise when things go well. You've lifted me up. I also want to acknowledge you even when things are going down. Even when, you, when I feel cast down, I know, Lord, I wouldn't be here if your hand was not upon me. There's a sense of comfort in that. There's a sense of security like a little child who is learning to swim and father or mother holds his hand and lets him sink in the water and then pulls him up quickly again. It's not pleasant to feel like you're about to drown, but there's security knowing that daddy's still holding on, isn't there? And God is still holding on to his children, even in the depths of our soulish struggles. So he continues now to expound on, on what, what his experience is, but his perspective is beginning to shift he says, my days are like a shadow that declineth, and I am withered like grass. Like a sundial, you know, the shadow that as it gets longer and longer as the sun goes down uh, into the evening. And so he says, literally, maybe he's about to die, or, or at least he feels like his days are growing short. His days are declining like a shadow. He's, he's, he's getting near the end of his rope, in other words. But thou, O Lord, shalt endure forever, and thy remembrance unto all generations... He stops and thinks about God instead of just thinking about himself. And he thinks about God in a way that might seem counterintuitive. 
There is a benefit to thinking about God in his similarity to us and the man Christ Jesus, tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin that we've already quoted. But there's also a benefit to thinking about how different God is from us. Here I am, limited in time, limited in space, limited in strength, limited in my brain power, limited in my checking account, limited in every single way I can think about, but I'm serving a God who's unlimited in all those dimensions. He's from eternity. He's to eternity. He's boundless. His wealth has no limit. The cattle of a thousand hills are his. He has all wisdom, and he always does the right thing, and he always knows the right thing to do. God has no limit, and guess what? I'm on his side. He's recruited me. He has invited me. He's adopted me into his family. And therefore, like the little child who says, my daddy can beat up your daddy. His confidence is not in his own strength. His confidence is in big old strong dad. We can say, I'm with him. That's the one I'm going to think about. That's the one whose praises I'm going to sing. I'm not going to boast in my own strength because I'm brought low and I realize I have no strength of my own. But I'm going to boast in his strength. Oh, Lord, thou shalt endure forever. And thy remembrance unto all generations. Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion for the time to favor her. Yea, the set time is come. For thy servants take pleasure in her stones and favor the dust thereof. So the heathen shall fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth thy glory. When, not if, but when the Lord shall build up Zion He shall appear in his glory. He will regard the prayer of the destitute and not despise their prayer. So one shift in perspective, which we'll still see some more of, is a shift in perspective of of, we're thinking about God instead of self. We're thinking about his glory, his strength, his infinity in every dimension, instead of thinking about all of our frailty and limitations and lack. And then a second shift in perspective that we see hinted at here and we'll also develop later through the psalm is a a, a shift to where we're thinking about others instead of self. We're thinking about a cause broader than self. Yesterday, like like Brother James' message today about Mount Carmel and and my message yesterday in in, uh, New York regarding David standing up to Goliath and David saying, is there not a cause? Children, and not just little bitty children, but big grown-up children too, need a cause. We need to realize there's something bigger than me. There's something that goes beyond me. There's something that's going to last longer than my time on this earth. When I'm a little kid, I think my time on this earth is going to be a long time. When you get to be be about 30 or 40 or 50 or 60, you think, you know what? I may not have that many more days left on this earth. Time is like a vapor. My days are like a grass that is going to wither in the noonday sun. But I'm part of a cause that is bigger and more important and more significant than just my little life. But because I'm part of that cause, my life attaches and gains significance from that great cause. So here's this man that's bent down and withered, he says, like grass, verse 4, forgetting to eat his bread, his bones sticking through his skin, his enemies reproaching me, everybody against him. He's eating ashes like bread, mingling his drink with weeping. But now he says, wait a second, there's a cause There's something bigger than me going on. And God is true to his word. As we consider his infinity, we also consider his righteousness, which means simply, righteousness is a big word. It's a familiar word, but maybe we use it so often we don't think about what it really means. It's a really simple word. Right is the beginning of that word. Righteousness means doing the right thing. Does God always do the right thing? Therefore, God is perfectly righteous. 
And so when I think about God's righteousness, that means that unlike even a well-intentioned parent who promises but then fails to deliver because of his lack of ability to do what he promised, or like the negligent parent who promises to do something for his children but then fails to do it because he forgot or just didn't really care or just wanted to get them off his back so he made a promise he knew he couldn't fulfill, God makes promises and he always fulfills them. And that's why David or the psalmist here can pray with such confidence saying not if the Lord is going to appear again, not if the Lord is going to build up Zion, but when it happens, when it happens, and Lord, I pray I'm there to see it when it happens, he shall appear in his glory and he will regard the prayer of the destitute and not despise their prayer. Just like happened back in Egypt, just like happened after those 400 years of bondage when they begin to cry out to the Lord under the weight of their burden and some of the sweetest words in all the Old Testament are, and God heard their cry. Friends, he hears the cry of the afflicted. Like the hymn writer said, Lo, at thy feet I'll cast me down, to thee reveal my guilt and fear. And if thou spurn me from thy throne, I'll be the first that perish there. No penitent sinner, no needy begging saint has ever been rejected from the throne of mercy, friend. And then he says, This shall be written for the generation to come, And the people which shall be created shall praise the Lord. I'm going to take a double application of this verse 18. It's a a beautiful verse. First of all, the simple and obvious application, this shall be written for the generation to come. Guess what? It was written for the generation to come. You're holding it right now. You're reading it. You're reading the words of this psalmist from thousands of years ago, and it was written for you. Praise God. Aren't you thankful that he allowed his men and blessed his men and inspired his men to write down their experiences and dealings with God so that you could relate your experience to theirs thousands of years later and recognize that God is just the same today. But I think also I take this in the sense of the way that our life, each of us has a life that in some sense is a book being written, right? You, um, you, you, each chapter of the life unfolds, and some of us really don't know what's happening in the next chapter at all. We're kind of like the ball on the end of the pen, rolling around just dizzy as can be, don't know what's coming next. But you know those people that love to line up at the bookstore the night before a new bestseller is coming from a favorite author, and they want to be the first to get, maybe they'll even get a signature inscribed copy of the book. Do you know, friends, child of God, there are people watching your life, and they want to see the next chapter. They want to know what is the last chapter in the life of this person who has suffered so much, who has has bled, who who has sweat, as it were, great drops of blood, who has suffered on the field of battle, but they still look up and love their Savior. They still cry out to him for deliverance. I wonder what the last chapter of that book is going to be. Well, Paul knew. Paul said, I'm confident of this very thing. That he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. It's not going to be your glory, friends. But the last chapter of your story is going to give glory to God. And so we can have confidence and hope as we're in the midst of those trying chapters in the middle of the book. I don't know where it's going. I don't know how I'm going to get there. But Lord, I know you are true to your promises. And you are going to get glory to yourself even through my frail being. He says, he hath looked down from the height of his sanctuary from heaven did the lord behold the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner to loose those that are appointed to death to declare the name of the lord in zion and his praise in jerusalem when the people are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the lord this this man is still a suffering person but now he's suffering with a sense of expectation of triumph that is broader than himself he's not just saying lord you're going to get me out of my problem i'm going to overcome my adversity at some point But Lord, I'm excited to be a part of the greater work that you are doing. 
I'm thinking about the generation after me and the generation after them. And I'm thinking about the cause of God, not just within the boundaries of this city or within the boundaries of this county, but as they said in the book of Acts, unto Jerusalem and unto Judea and unto Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. I'm I'm going out in concentric circles, starting small, but expanding my thought and my expectation that God, you are such a great God. You are doing a great work among all your people. And here I sit suffering. I picture a little old man, you know, kind of stooped over on his cane in the first part of this chapter. But now when we get to the middle of the psalm, he's standing up and he's waving his cane in the air. And he's praising God's name and he's thanking the Lord, even though he's still hurting. To declare the name of the Lord in Zion, his praise in Jerusalem when all the people are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the Lord. He weakened my strength in the way. He shortened my days. That verse 23 is very much like verse 10 where he's acknowledging the hand of God's providence. He is not blaming God. Friends, that is the the most foolish and short-sighted and unbiblical thing we can possibly do in the midst of any adversity is blame God. You know, when I look at one of my kids, not one specific one of my kids, any one of my kids, and, um, and I've observed them all, and, the, and, and, and my parents observed the same thing in me, and your kids do this too, even if you think they're perfect. You have seen your children get in a situation where you knew that there was something that they could have done differently that would have made the situation turn out differently, but all they can do is blame everybody else. The teacher was so unreasonable. Could you believe? And mom, I mean, you didn't wake me up in time. And, you know, there's just all these things that are everybody else's fault. And at some point, you're just like, okay. <laughs> you know, what do you say at that point? Well, this psalmist is not getting in the business of blaming God, casting blame on God for his adversity, but he is acknowledging the hand of God, his overarching sovereignty above, before, and beyond his adversity. And so he says, he weakened my strength in the way he shortened my days. And I said, oh my God, take me not away in the midst of my days. Thy years are throughout all generations. Lord, you're from forever. You're to forever. I'm here in my, writing the little bitty book of my life. And I feel like I'm on about chapter 12, but I think there's a few more chapters to go. Lord, please give me a few more chapters like old Hezekiah, who turned his face to the wall with his fatal disease. Hospice was called in, and he begged God, and God gave him 15 more years. Hezekiah, your book's not done yet. I hear about some older ministers who've, who've served for 50, 60, or more years, and people are like, well, it's about time for them to hang up their spurs, and God opens up new avenues of ministry for them, and new, new expanded ways of them to minister to people in need that they've never even encountered before. And I'm just thinking, God is not done with that person yet. He is, he is continues to bless. He's taking that 10-talent servant and giving him one more talent just to press across the finish line. Lord, I'm not, don't be done with me yet. Oh, my God, take me not away in the midst of my days. Thy years are throughout all generations of old. Okay, I'm getting to my favorite part of the psalm. We're almost done, but don't go to sleep yet. Verses 25 through 27 are also in the New Testament. We're going to get a little little New Testament jolt of energy into this old groaning psalmist's words. Of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of thy hands. I am weak, but thou art strong. I am nothing, and Lord, you're everything. Lord, you've been here from forever. You laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the work of thy hands. 
They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Keep your finger there in Psalm 102 because we're not quite done with it yet. But all the way over to almost the end of the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 1. And we're going to see that the Holy Spirit used this description of the suffering, grieving psalmist in 102 to definitively establish the divinity of Christ, which, friends, is not something we should take for granted. This is, um, there, there are some of these doctrines that are written in articles of faith, but it's been so long since we've seen them uh, debated or challenged or questioned that we think that's not really that big of a deal, is it? Like the Trinity, like the, per, the complete manhood and the complete godhood of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, it turns out that is quite an important doctrine. Brother James and I had the, the remarkable experience in recent months of dealing with a sincere inquirer who come, came late in life to our congregation. And he just said, his, his, reminds me a little bit of this psalm right here. He said, my heart is crying out to the Lord. And we talked to him for a little while. We'd ask him some questions. We'd read him some scriptures. And then he would say, my heart is crying out to the Lord. And it seemed like his heart was crying out to the Lord. And so we began to go through and try to understand and try to teach and try to see where is he coming from, what's his background. Well, he had some way religious you know, background way back early in life. His um, uncle or great uncle or somebody was a, you know, a oneness Pentecostal uh, preacher, holiness preacher, who rejected the full uh, deity and manhood of Jesus Christ and rejected the doctrine of the Trinity. And so as we're, we're trying to show him from the word of God, going through and expounding these things and and in the sweetness of this brother's spirit. Remember, never sat in church for his entire adult life, but he walks in with a great, big, huge, large print Bible, and we sit there together, and we're flipping through the pages of the Bible, and we'll read a verse together, and he said, well, it says that, so it must be true. And we read about election and predestination. He says, you know, I don't understand how that's fair, but God can do anything, can't he? So I guess it's true. And we would read, and he said, it. He said I came because I want to be baptized. Uh, Brother Stephen, the Lord, he sends you all the hardballs and, uh, and uh, curveballs, and I get the slow pitch right over the middle of home plate. <laughs> I don't know why it is. The Lord must have known you could handle it, and I couldn't. But he's like, can I please be baptized? And um, I said, well, here's the way we do baptism. We baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And he says, I like that. He said, but I remember what my uncle said. And he said, baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, which is Jesus. This is We'll talk about it later if that doesn't make sense to you. It's a part of that oneness Pentecostal stuff. And I smiled at him real big and I said, I know you know, I know you said you just want to do what the word of God says. I said, let's see what Jesus actually said. We turned over to Matthew 28. He said, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And he looked up at me and smiled real big. He said, I think that sounds just right. So here we have the, the divinity and the tr- of Christ and the Trinity affirmed in the first chapter of Hebrews chapter 1 here. And by the way, he was baptized just the other day. And uh, what a sweet, sweet season that was. And, and his sweet spirit continues. He says here, trying to prove to these Hebrew Christians who are tempted to go back into Judaism, tempted to reject the fuller revelation of the new covenant. He goes through their, their own scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, to prove to them that Jesus is both fully man and fully God. 
and far above the angels. And as part of that proof, he goes to the very psalm we've been reading this morning. Verse 11, verse 10. He says, Thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment. He said these things that seem like they've been here forever and will be here forever. Those great mountains, those vast oceans, the the very firmament, the, the, the foundations of earth itself and the firmament above, the heavens themselves, all of it seems like, well, that's going to surely outlast me. And you're right. It will outlast you in your earthly existence. But as permanent as those things are, the psalmist and the Holy Spirit of the Hebrews here, they both affirm God was before those things ever were and God will be after those things ever are. God is far greater than that, and that's the God you're calling upon for aid. Do you have confidence now? Can you smile in the midst of your grief and say reinforcements are coming? The promises of God will be in Christ, yea and amen. I can cling to those promises. I can claim those promises. I can look forward to his deliverance because he said it is so. And I love the imagery here. He says these things, again, that seem so firm and solid and permanent like the mountains themselves, he said they will wax old like a garment. You know, you've got to put a patch in your knees. Nowadays, you don't have to do that. You can walk around with the knees completely blown out. And you know how uh, you're, you know, the, they just start to sag and get discolored. And you're like, it's time for a new T-shirt or something. Well, he says here, the whole universe that God made, he's going to just fold it up like a pair of used pajamas and put it away. And he's going to go about doing his everlasting plan. Now, which are you going to place your confidence in? The idols of Baal, the physical universe around you, the world that seems so great and powerful, or the God who's going to fold it all away and stick it in the back of the drawer and say, now let's go on to the next thing. Because as a vesture thou shalt fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. That's the God whom we call upon. And so back to Psalm 102, he says, verse 28, The children of thy servants shall continue, and their seed shall be established before thee. Psalm 103, verse 8, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. Friend, If you are suffering today or if you are suffering tomorrow, remember you need to refresh your perspective of God and his greatness. You need to refresh your perspective of others and realize there's a cause greater than you. And your place in that cause is what gives your life meaning and purpose and helps you overcome even the burden of your own afflictions. And third, you need to be looking to the word of God because he said these things are going to be written down and preserved for the generations to come. What God has put in his word matters because that's what points us back to those great remedies. May God bless you. We're glad you've been able to listen to this podcast. We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 1030 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application.